All right, let's go to James chapter 5. For the very last time, James chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a physical Bible of your own, you don't have one that you can call yours, we invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know him. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him. And if the, the Bible is what he uses to do that in you, then it puts you at a disadvantage not to be chasing after him in the Bible. And so if you don't have one that you can call yours, take that physical at home, uh, and it'll be a pretty good thing, and, uh, and we'll celebrate it around here. Uh, welcome to our final week of the James series, everybody. Um, week number 19 of our personal effort. Uh, if you haven't been here normally, I would spend uh, a few minutes kind of unpacking the book of James uh, and what James is and uh, what, he, what, he, what we've covered so far. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, we actually have a mountain to climb this morning. I got to talk for a while. And so I'm going to skip like 90% of that, all right, if, you, uh, if you're the, uh, the technology type, you can go find it, uh, you know, audio and video and all the platforms and have fun with that. Um, so here's what you absolutely need to know today about the letter of James, all right? James is a general letter written to all Christians about the complicated relationship that exists between what we believe and what we do. All right, that's, that's kind of the, the general synopsis of James, what, the, the relationship between what we believe and what we do. James argues that while those two things should never be confused, their relationship is significantly closer than what probably most of us are really comfortable with. All right? And so he starts, starts walking through a long list of incredibly practical ways uh, that an authentic faith in Jesus ought to produce an obvious fruit in our lives, or in James's vocabulary, works. All right, works in our lives that are consistent with a living faith. Not a dead faith. Dead faith doesn't save you. But a living faith that actually produces all of these things as a byproduct, as a natural byproduct. Yeah, there's a list of those. Last week, we, he began to close out his letter by linking those obvious works uh, to the trials and even persecutions um, that his main audience, his original audience, just had swirling around them. They'd experienced themselves. They could reasonably expect to experience again soon. And now, now he's ready to give his audience what I would call a final conclusion. All right, he's going to wrap his letter up. And, and I happen to think... And just by my own reading of James, I happen to think that it's in his most practical instruction yet. He just, he just nails everything to the wall. This is what we do. This is who we are, right? And so if I were to ask you the question uh, this morning, how do you actually live out an authentically faith-filled Christian life? Right, that's the question on the table. And remember, that's, that was the underlying question, the underlying debate that James waded into with the writing of this letter. That's what everybody around him uh, was arguing about and had entrenched positions over. What does the day-to-day -day living of an authentically faith-filled Christian look like? What would your answer be? Well, James has an answer. And it's going to come in three parts here, starting in verse 12. Ready for it? Chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. All right, so those of you with a physical Bible in your lap, you may notice a problem here. All right, uh, you may notice that verse 12 is included in the section uh, that we looked at last week. All right, uh, But this time, I did not cut off the resolution section of a poem. All right, that, that wasn't my fault this time. There's actually debate about where verse 12 goes. 
All right? In the larger commentary community, uh, in the world that commentaries kind of exist in, there's a split between people who are on team verse 12 belonging to the section above it and people who are on team verse 12 belonging to the final section. All right? That's how that works. Um, and by the simple reality of us talking about it this morning instead of seven days ago, guess which team I'm on. All right? uh, but why though? Why, why, would, why would we need to consider that? Well, it's that first bit. But above all my brothers... A couple of verses earlier, verse 9, James had a quick little word about something else coming out of our mouths. And so that's kind of a connection uh, to, to verse 12 here. There's a loose connection there. Uh, at least that's how it's been historically seen. Uh, but and that's why most modern translations like the ESV that we're using here this morning will include it uh, in that, that pericope right before. Uh, but the phrase, but above all, well, it sounds like it's turning a corner, doesn't it? And... As we have discovered more and more extant Greek writings from this period, we've noticed a trend. This exact phrasing is used over and over and over again from other Greek writings of the time as a sort of literary device to signal the end of a letter. In our own cultural equivalent, it would be to say something like, well, to wrap things up, so that causes a lot of scholars lately to ignore what has only been kind of a loose connection historically between verse 9 and verse 12. It causes us to now see verse 12 as the introduction to James's very last point. Therefore, we're hitting it today. Now, if, if this is James introducing the final point of his letter, then that means that he gives what I'm counting here as three simple, practical categories of what he sees in as, as an authentically faith-filled life. So what's the first one? He says, don't swear any oaths. Don't swear any oaths. And that sounds an awful lot like something Jesus once said, right? Did you read that like I remember reading that? It's because it's almost verbatim what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 33-37. So what does not swearing or swearing an oath have to do with a simple, authentic faith? Well, there's been a handful of Christian sects that, um, that have read that command as literally as it can be read. Right? Uh, groups like the Quakers, several Anabaptist groups like the Brethren and the Mennonites and the Amish, those kind of groups. Uh, they have all historically looked at Jesus and looked at James and they have argued that this is a strict command to avoid anything and everything that could ever be taken in the shape of an oath. All right? So much so that it has often uh, been a barrier for many of those people in those groups serving in public office and even refusing to serve as a witness in a, in a court proceeding, those kinds of things. They're trying to faithfully live out what they see as a conscience level issue. Jesus said, don't do it, so we're not going to do it. All right? um, and to a certain extent, I think to at least a certain extent, that should be applauded. Like Whenever we've got a conscience issue, I would hope that other people would see us with a little bit of charity in that, right? Um, I think there's some problems, though, with at least a couple of problems with their logic. Uh, first of all, because there are a number of oaths in the Bible, like a, like a really long list of oaths, uh, and many of them are very clearly righteous ones. All right? um, in Hebrews 7, we're told that God himself swears an oath to establish Jesus forever as a priest. Is God allowed to do that? <laughs> I think God's allowed to do that. On top of that, the Apostle Paul uh, includes some form of an oath in just about half of his New, Te New Testament writings. Like half the letters that Paul wrote, there's some kind of oath buried in there. Romans 1.9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. 
2 Corinthians 1.23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Galatians 1.20, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. And so if you, if you dance around the idea that, well, God's allowed to swear an oath because, you know, he's God, he gets to do whatever he wants. Uh, a couple of those groups actually do that, make that argument. You still have to either argue that Paul is sinning in these moments by including oaths, actively disobeying Jesus, or you need to conclude that there is such a thing as a righteous oath that Jesus would be pleased with. Which one do we think it is? Now, we've, we've talked at times in here, about a certain tribe of people who like to pit James and Paul against each other, act like they're teaching wildly different things. Uh, that group has no problem at all uh, calling Paul a sinner who should repent here. Like, like they just don't like the guy. All right. Um, but we've also shown over and over and over again throughout this series that James and Paul have a much more consistent message than the detractors try to argue. And so we can safely assume, I think, or at least I hope, that we can safely assume that righteous oaths are a genuine category. So what then are James and Jesus actually teaching against? Well, Jesus' teaching on oaths comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters dedicated to uh, kind of expl Jesus explaining the character and posture of his kingdom citizens, who his people are. And what's more, uh, the oaths piece in chapter 5 actually is sandwiched between two other things uh, in Jewish life, teachings from Jesus that a Jew would have naturally seen as moments where an oath would be taken. All right. um, the top layer of bread uh, is, is Jesus' is teaching about divorce all right? and how it was far, far too easy in the minds of God's people to break the oath that they had made. Um, the bottom piece of bread under the oath's teaching, all right, it was uh, Jesus' teaching about retaliation. It would have been quite common in that culture uh, in those kind of days for uh, someone to make some grand declaration about how they were going to right the wrong that someone did to them or to their family. They make this public showing of this grand oath of, I'm going to repay them. So the middle of the sandwich, Jesus essentially says, why, why are you appealing to something that you don't control? A higher authority over you that you have no ability to actually back up. You appeal to heaven, okay. Are you in charge there? You appeal to the temple and to the throne of God. Or, are, are you the one who built it? Are you the one who sits on that throne? Here in James, James has, a, has been teaching all letter long that an authentic faith will give you a deep, deep humility before the Lord and it will affect how you speak about others and to others and even about yourself. According to James, what comes out of your mouth is a pretty accurate depiction of, and probably an incredibly public picture of how you relate to God, Right? And so with those structures to stand on, with that platform that James and Jesus have built for us, um, what, are, what are they actually saying about oaths? Well, I think they're talking about the sin-bent tendency in each and every one of us to make ourselves look like a bigger deal than we naturally are. Are you guilty of that like I'm guilty of that sometimes? By inflating our speech and by appealing to external authorities in order to validate ourselves. That if I point to something bigger than me or more authoritative than me, that I can cause you to see me with that same authority. 
So instead of a simple yes or a simple no, we feel the need to sound a little more impressive than we naturally would by tacking on an oath. In the first century, that, that was an appeal to God or an appeal to the altar in the temple. On the playground in the 20th century, much, much more comical on my mother's grave, right? And every ounce of it, church, every ounce of it was because we feel the need to bring something more substantial than our own character to the table. Something more substantial than just honesty in that moment. But implied in both Jesus and James, at the end of the day, if my yes is not good enough and my no is not good enough to validate what's coming out of my mouth, what I ultimately lack is character, not authority. James says that the simple, authentically faith-filled Christian life, it isn't complicated. Quit trying to exalt yourself by what's coming out of your mouth. Quit trying to uh, appeal to some kind of outside authority to what you're saying. No, just speak the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's, you don't have to make it more complicated than that. Just be honest. Now, the truth isn't contentious either. Uh, the unfortunate reality is it is just as possible to try and exalt ourselves with our truth telling. With our truth telling, jerks for Jesus are just as sinful as the one who tries to falsely inflate their speech, right? Falsely inflate their language. But James has already spent a lot of time covering that side of the issue. He doesn't have to cover it now. We can lean on his teaching from before. If you're looking for nuance, humble yourself before the Lord. He says, "Okay, okay, yeah, sure, yeah, I can do that." But like, what else has James got? What else would he, would James have us pursue for a simple, authentically faith-filled Christian life? Well, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. All right, so if I were going to try to rephrase kind of the general idea of what James just said there, it would be this. Whatever season of life you're in right now, go and do the simple things that God has already given you to do. It's not more complicated than that. You don't have to come up with some magical list. You don't have to seek some shaman-type figure to figure out a higher pathway. No, God's already given us incredible tools. Go do those things. Is it a rough season for you right now? Are you suffering in the moment? Go to God in prayer. That's what he says. There's no fourfold pathway. There's no seven steps to victory over your struggles. No, 1 Peter 1, 5, 7. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord, for he cares for you. It's that simple. Go to the Lord in prayer. Church, the one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, I think he actually meant it. He is compassionate and he is gentle and he very well may remove that suffering, but whether he does remove it or he doesn't remove it, his presence is sweeter than both options. He hangs out with you in the middle of the suffering. I know how ridiculous that sounds to a culture that thinks that the escape of suffering in this world is the only viable option because this world is all that they have ever put their hope in. Sounds outlandish to say, take your hands off. I get it. But for the Christian, we have a far more eternal hope than that. We have forever access to the one who is all comfort. 
Next, James says, are you celebrating right now? Is it a season of cheerfulness for you? Okay, go to God and praise. Celebrate who he is and what he's done. Don't you dare fall into believing uh, that you have built this success yourself. No, no, no. Run right to the Lord and give him the glory. That's his point. Church, the one who, the one who gives every good and perfect gift, to use James's language, he is infinitely more lovely than every lovely thing he's ever put in your lap. I don't know how ridiculous that sounds to a culture that thinks that man-made comfort and luxury are the top of the mountain that everyone ought to be chasing after, that everyone ought to aspire to. I get it. But for the Christian, for the Christian, we're not as easily distracted by man-made glitter. Not because the glitter isn't nice, but because we've seen something more eternal and better and more valuable. We've seen a, a glimpse of a more eternal prize. Then right on the heels of that, James says, are you sick right now? Are you in a season of brokenness of body? Things falling apart? Just call the leaders of your church to come pray over you. Now that doesn't mean that doctors and nurses and medical intervention are bad or wrong. They're obviously great things that God uses for his glory and good purposes. Clearly so. Clearly so. But church, we've also seen God's hand move too many times to ever think that that's our only hope. Yes, use them. Yes, lean into them. God has given to them as gifts. But that's not our only hope. It's not even our primary hope. If he uses it, great. If he uses something else, even better. And I know how ridiculous that sounds to a culture that scoffs at things like prayer in those moments and is only ever capable of thinking in strictly materialistic terms. I get it. But for the Christian, for the Christian, God has proven himself good time and time and time and time again. Why would we ever doubt him now? Also, as an aside, notice that James uses the word elders there told you a couple of months ago that uh, that was the first use of the word in the book of Acts uh, happens in chapter 11 and we think it was about the same time period as the writing of this letter so we know that they're cropping up right now Uh, and so uh, here we see it being used in what may be the very earliest thing written in the New Testament and so uh, that that position dates back that far Uh, now what exactly at this point in time James thinks an elder does we're not 100% sure that can still be debated Uh, at some point they clearly become uh, the identified leaders of the local church but according to James at the very minimum we know that they are supposed to pray whenever they're called on to pray that's what that's what we learn here that's one of the jobs of the elders but it's the shape and the purpose and the result of that praying that concerns what James has to say next and uh, it's also the part of the section uh, that gets the most attention by people with really strong opinions about stuff. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, welcome to verse 15, otherwise known as our final installment in the really long list of stuff in the book of James that gets twisted into the knots for all kinds of weird theological purposes. You ready to have some fun with it? Oh my God, humble us for his word. Here we go. All right, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right, what do we think about that? (laughs) Believe it or not, this verse 
gets proof texted by two very different groups running in exactly opposite directions. It gets used for all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, the first group is, what, is a group called the Word of Faith Movement. All right, maybe you've heard of that, otherwise known as the health and wellness gospel. Uh, the kind of stuff that, unfortunately, you often see on Christian TV. Um, the, they'll point to James 5.15 as an argument that someone's health is directly tied to how much faith that person has. They literally argue that God's people cannot get sick if they're walking in obedience and trust. That's a bold claim. It's a bold claim. To them, Jesus' death, they have theological reasons behind this. To them, Jesus' death on the cross was not merely to pay for sin, but also, also to heal all of our diseases and afflictions. They've got a, they've got a Christological argument, if you want to use that, the proper term for it, for why they come to this position. And so therefore, if someone does get sick, well, they only have themselves to blame. Because Jesus is supposed to have taken care of all that for his people. Are you his people? That's the question. And so for this movement, the pathway out of illness, the the literal pathway out of illness is to manifest the authority that you have been given as a child of God, child of the king, and rebuke that illness, rebuke that disease in victorious faith. That's the game. If you can sweeten the deal by bringing in a special leader who has the gift and the mantle, they would call it, of healing, well, you will certainly be healed. James says so. Not only is it a ridiculous argument because the word faith people pull their supposed scriptural justification out of a letter where James has already told his audience to rejoice in their suffering. Those things are in direct conflict with each other, right? You've got to ignore other things that James has said over and over again throughout this letter to make that say that. But it's also ridiculous because, by my estimate, tens of thousands of people buying their books and tickets to their conferences still die of their various diseases. Never healed. All the while believing that the reason they were never healed was because they didn't manifest the faith hard enough. Church, the only proper and biblical way of defining that, describing that, would be to call it a demonic fleecing of those who are desperate for God to heal them physically. And listen, I know, I get it. I know that some people get uneasy whenever we start taking shots at groups that they just see as another expression of Christian faith. I I, I get that. But this is not some intra-Christian squabble over secondary and tertiary doctrines. Not even close. What we're talking about here is a completely different gospel, period. Placing your hope and your faith in a completely different thing than Jesus. You're placing it in yourself to believe hard enough, to remain true enough, to to declare your situation rightly. Yes, Jesus is mentioned, but only as leverage only ever as a means to their greater self-exaltation end. It's wicked. The proper term for it is wicked. And if the gospel is going to be clear to those who don't understand the difference, then it deserves our open and harshest criticism. But I told you there were were two groups that twist verse 15 inside out. The second group's more fun to deal with. It's the Catholic Church. I don't know what your background is. I don't know 
I mean, I know that we have a lot of people in our church family that come out of Catholicism, a lot of people that still have a lot of friends and family involved in it. I've also found it to be true, I don't know if this is the way you read things, but I've also found it to be true that many professing Catholics don't have any idea at all of the working theology of their supposed you know, biblical arguments of Catholicism. Like, they can't actually tell you why Catholics believe X, Y, and Z. James 5.15 is the verse, not a verse, literally the verse that's pointed to whenever it's time to defend the Catholic sacrament of last rites. It's not an argument, it's the argument for last rites. Depending on exactly how sick someone is, it's sometimes called extreme unction. More recently, it's begun to be called the sacrament of anointing. Unlike the word of faith movement, rather than someone's personal strength of faith being uh, being what heals their body, the Catholic theologian keys in on James saying that the faithful person praying for the sick, quote, will save them. Passive. Now, if, if you're completely like unfamiliar with Catholicism, maybe you don't have that in your background, or specifically unfamiliar with the Catholic sacrament of last rites, um, I can give you some stuff to read if you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, but here's the super fast general idea. Salvation in Catholicism is not simply about being forgiven of your sins. It's, you need that, but you need more than that. You must also be free from what they call the attachment of sin, otherwise known as temptation. You need both. Right? Baptism, the Eucharist, confession, penance, those are all functional to-do list items for seeking forgiveness for, from God for your sin. But the Catholic theologian, uh, those things do not infect the impurity of your heart. You can seek forgiveness, but your heart is still dirty. Your heart is still sin-filled. There's still a temporal price to pay for your sin. And so that's where the doctrine of purgatory comes into play. Purgatory is the cleansing step between the world and all its sinfulness and the perfect, complete sinlessness of heaven. you got to be cleaned up before you can get there. Catholic doctrine, uh, Catholic doctrine 101. So how does one theoretically reduce the amount of time he or she is going to have to spend in the cleansing stage. Well, you've got two options. One, you do everything you can in this life to remove attachment and temptation from your heart. Or two, joyfully participate in things that the Catholic Church declares to be indulgences. Those are your options. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, didn't... I remember hearing a story about a guy named Martin Luther like 500 years ago throwing a big tantrum about all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Yeah, that's literally why the Protestant church exists. It's literally why the Protestant church exists. And the Catholic church is still 100% declaring indulgences today. This week, not, not 500 years ago, this week, Pope Francis declared that any grandparents actively participating in a math on, mass on July 23rd, which just happens to be International Grandparents Day, if you were looking, if they participate in that mass, they'll get a plenary indulgence. So congratulations, Catholic grandma or grandpa. Go to church on the 23rd, you can get some time knocked off your time in purgatory. That's, that's the teaching. It's the official declaration of the church. Just show up. Faithfully do the steps. And the Pope will declare some of your time removed. All right, so what, is, what does the sacrament of last rites have to do with any of that stuff? Well, there are a few different things that are happening in that moment. They confess their sin if they're able, if they, they, they take communion if they're able. But then finally, they are anointed and prayed over. That action is seen by the Catholic Church. Seen by the Catholic Church as an indulgence. That's what that literally is on a theological level for them. A final attempt 
on the part of the dying to throw off sinful attachment and make themselves as clean as they possibly can before they have to face God in judgment. That's what that moment literally is in their theological worldview. So how is all that different from what we believe about the gospel? Well, it's really simple. For the Christian, we believe that when Jesus declares someone to be justified, and that when he clothes them in his own perfect righteousness, you do not need, he does not need, our petty attempts at cleaning ourselves up right before we get there. Period. I know we have more people in here with connections and backgrounds to Catholicism than we do with the Word of Faith movement. I'm I'm aware of that. I want to be incredibly careful. I want to be really, really gentle. But we also have to be honest where honesty is due. We are talking about fundamentally different gospel messages. They're not at all the same. They're not even close to the same. They're running in opposite directions. We believe contradictory things about what Jesus has done and how we personally receive what Jesus has done. End of sentence. Acting like they're anywhere close to the same thing does everyone a great act of injustice. There's there's a season for playing nice, but then there's also a season for standing honestly on the truth. They're not the same. And if the gospel is going to be clear to those who don't understand the difference, then we're going to have to be open and honest about it. We're responsible for pointing it out. So we've got two massive landmines, right? We've got the belief that you can muster enough faith to fix all your problems. And we have the belief that we need the faith of some human mediator to fix all of our problems. How do we read James 5.15 without stepping on the landmines? Well, James already told us in verse 14, actually. Are you sick? Call for the leaders of your church to come and pray for you. Does that mean that when, whenever you, you do so, that you're certainly going to get better? No, it honestly doesn't. It doesn't mean that you're, all, you're always going to get better. But sometimes you will. That sounds like a good thing. Sometimes God chooses to heal the body in exactly that way, and sometimes, man, he, he just doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't choose that at all. As, as someone who has been in a lot of hospital rooms, I can tell you that walking out of one of those rooms when somebody has just spent time sharing stories and sharing Bible verses and singing hymns and being prayed over, there's an otherworldly peace in that hospital room uh, on the back end of that moment that the non-Christian doesn't have a framework for understanding very well. They can't. They can't comprehend what's going on in that moment. There's a beauty in that moment that outpaces the medical prognosis. And everybody in that room eventually comes to the same understanding that God will either be glorified by healing their body or God will be glorified in taking them home. It is an an entirely different scene than the non-Christian's hospital room. Every time. And maybe seeing James 5.15 is something that you need to figure out which levers to pull in what order is a giant case of missing the point of what James just said. Are you sick? Okay. Call the elders in to pray. Because our God uses prayer. Like, haven't we seen that? 
Haven't we all been witness to that? Haven't we seen him use prayer to do incredibly wonderful things? Why, why not pray? Why, why wouldn't we ask him to do something amazing? He's done it before. He's good. So let's see if he does it in this moment. We're also running out of time here, so I've got to keep going. All right. Got a bunch more verses to get through to finish this letter. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a, natural, uh, with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All right, so the Word of Faith movement likes to tack these three verses also onto their argument uh, for your faith being uh, the main driver in your personal victory over the problems in your life. Uh, see what Elijah did? We can do that too. That's the argument. But when you step back and see it in this, quit making this so complicated kind of framework that I think James has given us, I think it becomes a simple statement of that God has given us the local church for our good. Christian, you, you want to know how to live an authentically faith-filled life? James starts by saying, confess your sins to one another. Whenever someone is pursuing formal membership in our church, we sit down and we talk with them over a number of different things, things we want them to know before they make that commitment. And one of those things that we talk about is that healthy churches should always have a posture and a steady practice of humility and repentance. If those aren't markers that you see in the church uh, that you're joining, it's a red flag, run away. Join some other church. Without that, the church will quickly become something other than what God has called it and created it to be. That's, that's what James is talking about here. There's no priest involved. It's like, go and confess your sins to the priest. You don't need another human mediator between God and man. Jesus has already bridged that gap. Okay, but why confess to each other? That sounds kind of weird. I don't want you to know my junk. It's because that's how healthy relationships work. Right? If I mess up, if I sin against my wife, if I sin against somebody in our church family, the prescribed model is to go to them, to seek forgiveness and to see what I can do to fix it. If I'm struggling with personal sin that doesn't you know, directly affect a bunch of other people or anybody specifically, confessing is still my best option. It's still for my greatest good because a healthy church family will come alongside me in that moment and help me navigate the necessary and righteous pathway of putting that sin to death. I'm not by myself in that moment. I'm not having to face it alone in that moment. Church, I don't know if you noticed this yet, but our God's a lot smarter than us. Have you seen that to be true? I don't know, maybe. Just a thought. If we lean into the things that he's handed us for our good, it might actually work out in our favor. Right? Okay, but what about that whole Elijah piece, right? Doing incredible things. Well, despite what some have tried to argue, I think James's point is not that if we have enough faith, we can be, you know, do miracles like Elijah did. His point is that Elijah was a normal dude. Elijah, Elijah wasn't born special, with special powers and special smarts and special ability that the rest of us don't have. No, God called him and God equipped him and then God used him, period. And so in the context of an uncomplicated local church, God is still using normal dudes. That's good news for us. I'm about as normal as you come. 
If we're in a situation and it's clear that we need to start praying about it, our prayer is not, God, would you please send us an Elijah figure? Make him fall down from the sky so he fixes all of our junk. No, our prayer is, God, would you provide what we need by raising somebody up? Somebody, somebody fix what's going on here. He's done it before. I mean, guys, just look at Elijah. Why wouldn't we trust that he'd do it again? The authentically faith-filled Christian life isn't complicated. It's just not. We ask God to work powerfully, and then we step back and watch what he does with it. Can he be trusted in that? His character and his practice, I think, prove that he can. We've got two more verses to look at. Look at verse 19. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in the context of an uncomplicated local church, we're all looking out for each other. That's the general tone of what James just said. We live in a world that kind of seems to have bought into the lie uh, that letting someone go and run off into their whatever they're wanting to do is the most loving thing to do. That's garbage. Can I just say that out loud? Is that, is that allowed here? It's hot garbage. All right? All right? Not, only, not only does that story usually end up with the straying beloved pursuing something that harms them at a great level, but secondly, secondly, and I think far more importantly, it is literally the exact opposite of what the Bible defines love as. Like, you couldn't get more backwards than that. In the Bible, love engages. It fervently pursues. It extends itself, even at great personal cost, for the good of the beloved. Who cares what it costs? You go get them. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but how does that play out on the church level? What does that look like in the context of a, a local body of believers? Well, it means that we all ought to be the healthy kind of nosy. Let's not get it. There's an unhealthy kind. I'm not naming names. No, we all, to, we all ought to be the healthy kind of nosy. Bad examples do not rule out the value of what God has prescribed. Avoid the bad. Lean into what God has given. If someone is stepping deeper and deeper into sin, if someone is pulling away from the body, we ought, and the word is ought, to pursue them. Are, are there Christ-like and unchristlike ways of doing that? Absolutely there are. Of course there are. But we have to put to death this cultural idea of staying out of other people's business until we're invited in. Hey, can I give you something that you probably never thought through before? It's just incredibly true thing. People who are pulling away from Christian community and actively embracing sin will never, I mean ever, invite you in. They're running away. That's how that works. If you're waiting for an invitation, it will not come, and it will always be too late, period. Ah, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, but it's kind of awkward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And quite often, the cost of Christ-like love is swallowing the awkwardness. That's what it takes sometimes. Bring them back home, James says. What's the alternative avoiding, of avoiding awkward? That someone fails, falls all the way completely, but you get to celebrate not having been awkward? Is that, is that really the win for us? James says that the selfless but loving, active pursuit of those who are straying will be used by God to save their soul from death. 
I don't know if you can have a more loaded sentence than that. Church, the authentically faith-filled Christian life isn't complicated. It's just not. Speak the truth. Always. Pray. Ask God to do stuff. Praise Him in the celebratory moment. Make a steady habit of confessing our sins to one another. And then after that, help others do the same. And that's it. Like James doesn't even have a closing argument. Like uh, send greetings to so-and-so like Paul always does. He just shuts the letter down. All of his practical real world call for what we do matching what we believe. It's just boiled down to these simple instructions. And anything beyond that, church, anything beyond that is really just trying to blindly figure out how to pull all the levers. Manipulate the practice so that we can get something out of it for ourselves. But here's the truth. God loves us more than, far more than that. He loves us far more than that. He calls us to a much simpler pursuit of him than that. And he has lovingly given us some really, really, really simple tools in order to pursue him in a really, really simple way. Quit pulling the levers. He never asked you to. Lean into what he's given. I think you'll be happy to know him. So what do we do this morning? How can we respond to to God's word today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean in to what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I I think that probably needs to take the shape of removing the spiritual complications that we built up around uh, around all this stuff just in our own heads. Whether those practices have fleshed themselves out in the real world or not, it doesn't matter. If If it's a barrier in your head, it's a barrier that doesn't belong there. Is this a place we can be honest? I don't know if it is. Like We, we often make this authentically faith-filled Christian life something bigger and more cumbersome than what God has actually handed to us. I know I do. According to James, that needs to be repented of. One, because it causes us to see him and respond to him incorrectly, but two, because it seems to also skew how we present him to those who don't know him yet. That sounds dangerous. Christian, tear away the nonsense this morning. Lean into the goodness of who he is. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's the time that we set apart specifically to give you space to kind of translate the the head knowledge into something bigger and more important and better than that. If you want to talk, I'll be down front if you want to talk. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How How can you respond? It's simple. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all by default separated relationally from God and that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls that punishment God's wrath. The simplicity of the gospel begins with the simplicity of what is deserved by sinners. But it doesn't end there. You don't have to navigate some to-do list to seek forgiveness of your sin and then go on to navigate some other to-do list to detach yourself from uh, temptation. Nor, nor do you have to pump yourself up with some kind of, I believe I can, I believe I can bravado so that you can manifest your own salvation. Those are both false gospels. No, the Bible teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love that even when we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins that he makes us alive again through the grace of Christ. 
the eternal Son of God, Jesus. He, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither, neither of us can live. And he died on the cross as an innocent and perfect substitute in our place to make payment, full and final payment for our sin. Forget about cleaning yourself up. The Bible teaches that you can't. Jesus lived sinlessly for us. And he died on our behalf. And he was raised again from the dead as the vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now the king who conquered sin and death stands victoriously over the grave, calling you to be one of his citizens. You can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. We can talk. I don't think you need a mediator. You don't need me, but man, we can talk. What if you're here and you need to respond some other kind of way? Whether, whether that's formally joining our church family, or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's finally time to say yes, a public yes to some call that God's put on your life to take the gospel far away from here. I don't, I don't know, but man, I'd love to be helpful to you too. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for simplicity. And truth like a sledgehammer. Thank you for living faith. And for the call for that what we do matches what we believe. I'll be honest, that there are inconsistencies in my own heart. Would you keep revealing those to me? I want to root them out. Not because you need those to, to save. You are mighty. You save what you want. You don't need me to clean things up and fix all the problems. No, you are good. And you do as you please. But God, I also want to look more like Jesus. I want everything in my life to accurately represent what you've changed in my heart. Help me, help me not complicate this when instead lean into your goodness. Where I'm weak, I'm thankful that you are strong. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you call them to yourself this morning? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you? Call men and women into your kingdom this morning. We love you. Thank you for loving us before we even knew you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.